Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. How one is born again, how one is brought into the family of God. And we have been looking at the work of each person of the Trinity, that God the Father, before time began, chose his elect, gave them to the Son, sent his Son into this world to lay down his life for the elect. The Son has received this gift from the Father and has come into this world on a specific mission not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father, to lay down his life for these given ones. He laid down his life for his sheep. He laid down his life for his friends. And so now we come to the application of the death of Christ to those who are chosen by the Father. Uh, We come to how this takes place within time. The Father chose us in eternity past. Christ laid down his life 2,000 years ago. And now, on a daily basis around the world, God the Holy Spirit is carrying out his work of birthing these chosen ones into the kingdom of heaven. So let's walk through this, and I invite you to take your Bibles again and follow with me in the gospel of John, and if you would, let's turn back to the prologue to John chapter 1. One thing, as you're turning to John chapter 1, one thing that is amazing to me is how these doctrines of grace are so often front-loaded at the front doorstep of these books in the Bible. They're not hidden in the back of these books. Um, They are put at the very beginning. You take the book of Ephesians, Chapter 1, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You take 1 Corinthians, it talks multiple times about uh, we've been called and we have been chosen. Um, I could just go on through the epistles of the New Testament. The Gospel of John is very much the same. Um, As we look at the Gospel of John, as we now think about sovereign regeneration, it's immediately before our eyes. You can't open the Gospel of John without being immediately brought face to face with this truth. And it is found in verse 13. John chapter 1 and verse 13. And I want to begin in verse 12. I know I've already read verse 12, but to say it one more time, verse 12 is from a human perspective. Verse 13 is from a divine perspective. Verse 12, as many as, no more, no less, as many as received him, referring to the true light, Jesus Christ, to them, and the idea is to them only, he gave the right to become children of God. And with the right to become children of God, you are brought into the family of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, the question is, how did 
these become children of God? How did they enter into the family of God? They were on the outside of the family. How did they come into the family? And verse 13 gives the answer, and it could be easy to pass over verse 13, but here it is. It says, who were born? Stop right there. Uh, He will tell us in chapter 3, verse 3, to be born again, to be born from above. It's not referring to physical birth, but to spiritual birth. This is the doctrine of regeneration, in which it is the act of God by which he imparts new life to the spiritually dead soul. That's what the new birth is. It is the life of God in the soul of a man, in the soul of a woman. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin, John 5.25, and it is the new birth that imparts eternal life and spiritual life to the one who was spiritually dead. This new birth gives a new heart, it gives a new mind, it gives a new disposition, it gives new affections, uh, it gives a new nature, it gives a new life. Uh, the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So, how does this birth take place? He goes on to define this with three negatives and one positive. The three negatives are very emphatic. And as I've told you earlier, a good teacher will state things in the negative and in the positive. Negative denial, positive assertion. Uh, This is how it does not happen. This is how it does happen. There there can be no room for any misunderstanding. There are three negatives such that John is belaboring the point so that you and I will understand how the new birth takes place. So here are the three negatives, and you'll see in verse 13 the word not, the word not, the word nor. It is not of blood meaning it is not of your physical descent. It's not of your biological descent. In other words, just because your parents are born again does not automatically mean that you are born again, just because your grandparents or your great-great-grandparents. And in this day and time, the point that was being stressed was to those within Israel, just because you are a part of the nation Israel, does not mean that you're born again and that you're in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you can be the citizen of this nation without being in the family of God. So he begins at the broadest. He says, not of blood, not of physical descent. And then second, he says, not of the will of the flesh. That means it is not by human efforts. It is not by religious striving. And now comes the knockout punch. He says, not of the human will. In other words, it does not originate in the will of man, the new birth. You you, you do not exercise your will and then you are born again. It's the total opposite. You're born again and then you exercise your will. So it does not originate in the will of man. It's not determined by man's choices. And I can ask you the question again, what did you do to be born physically? The answer to that is nothing. Did you choose to be born? No. You appeared. And that is the point that Jesus is making, or that John is making here. It's not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were a conjunction of total contrast, but of God. Here's the positive. We are born again, not by our own will, but by the will of God. We are born again, not by our own working, but by the work of God. It's abundantly clear. The choice originated within God, and it was the work of God to birth us into the kingdom of God. Come to John chapter 3 and verse 3, and we see that it is what I want to call a monergistic regeneration. And I'll define the word monergistic in just a moment. But Jesus taught that the new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit that is performed within God's elect. John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that can be translated either born from above or born a second time, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? A man cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. I, I take that to refer not to water baptism, but as a metaphor for the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I take this to be translated, I say to you, unless one is born of water, comma, even the Spirit, comma, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. There are two metaphors being used here for the work of the Holy Spirit. One is wind in verse 8, and the other is water in verse 9. The working of the Holy Spirit in the new birth is, is uh, revealed by the analogy of wind and water. Wind in verse 8, water in verse 9. And this is exactly how Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 uses water as a, a cleansing up by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. That was the message George Whitfield preached so powerfully during the Great Awakening. He preached the nature and the necessity of the new birth again and again and again. And one time a woman came up to him after he had preached on the new birth, and he said, Mr. Whitfield, she said, why do you keep saying to us, we must be born again? And he said, because, dear woman, you must be born again. Well, I say the same to you. Except you be born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. And now verse 8 gives a fuller explanation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the new birth, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. Man does not determine where the wind blows. The wind itself determines where it goes. In reality, it's the invisible hand of God. And you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is going and where it comes from. In other words, you feel the wind. You cannot see the wind. You see the effects of the wind. 
Now, you ought to live where I live. Her, it's called her, uh, Hurricane Alley, where the, the hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico build up to Category uh, 5. And when they make landfall, and I live right on in a city that's on the coast, and you have to evacuate the powers. It just pancakes houses and, and, and trees. Well, I, I never see a hurricane in the purest sense because it's invisible. But the power of it is extraordinary. It's overbearing and overpowering. And you go stand in your front yard and, and you, you feel it. But you don't see it. This is the parallel that Jesus is making. And there is no way that we can control the wind. We can't direct the wind. We can't divert it away. It, it has a mind of its own. It will go where it goes. So at the end of verse 8, he says, So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's very clear, the parallel here, that the working of the Holy Spirit in the new birth is a sovereign operation. Man cannot control it. The preacher cannot direct it. The evangelist cannot uh, manipulate it. It is the hand of God that directs the wind. And it comes with such a force. It is unseen. The Holy Spirit is in this room right now. But He is unseen. But as I am teaching, He is working in my heart and giving passion to my soul. I feel the working of it. And I trust that you feel the working of the Holy Spirit right now within your mind and within your heart. And some of you under conviction and others of you being lifted up, which you got some would be birthed into the kingdom. That's the parallel that Jesus is making. James Montgomery Boyce writes at this point, clearly God uses this image because it alone shows that the initiative lies with the father entirely and not with the son or daughter who is engendered. What did you have to do with your birth? Did you say, I would like to be a boy? I'd like to be born to, to, to Mr. and Mrs. Smith. They seem like such a nice couple. Did you say, I'd like to be a girl? Uh, I want to be five feet, six inches tall, and I want blonde hair. Of course you did not. You had absolutely nothing to do with it. Instead, your father met your mother, and between them, they produced you, and you only realized what had happened afterwards. It is obvious, therefore, that when God uses this image, he does so to show that he alone is responsible for your salvation and that you believe only because he first created the life within you to do so. A monergistic... And the word monergism is not a word that we use in our day-to-day -day conversation, but it's a theological word that communicates much. The word mono means one. Monothematic, meaning one theme. Erg, E-R-G, is a Greek word from which we derive the English word energy, or a working Monergistic, or erg means a unit of work. Monergism refers to only one agent doing a work.
Monergistic regeneration communicates the truth that only one agent is active in the work of regeneration, and that one agent is God. The new birth is a saving work, work produced singularly by God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit alone is active. Man is passive. Conversely, the Arminian sees a synergistic regeneration. Sin, S-Y-N, means together with, like synthesis. You bring things together. Synergistic regeneration claims that there is not one, but two active agents in the new birth, God and man. And so this Arminian uh, semi-Pelagian view of the new birth sees two equal powers, God and man, and requires joint cooperation between God and man. And the one can veto the other. So it's a two-party view of the new birth, that man must cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and man can resist the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit must cooperate with man. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. It destroys the entire meaning of the analogy that in, re, in, in reality, it's what 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is God and God alone who causes us to be born again. So, how is the definite atonement of Christ applied to the life of the one the Father has chosen? And the answer is by the new birth, where God initiates the uh, sovereignly the impartation of life. And when God does that, God gives the gifts of repentance and faith that enables the one birth to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture does not teach believe and be baptized. Excuse me, believe and be born again. You are born again, and then you believe. Uh, the, the new birth precedes saving faith. The new birth produces saving faith. And it all takes place at a split second. There are not people walking around who are regenerated, but who have never believed upon Christ. It, it all takes place chronologically at the exact same moment, yet logically or theologically, the new birth precedes and produces saving faith. Yet it all takes place in the twinkling of an eye, in an exact moment. Uh, when I look at my passport, there it does not say that I was born in the spring of 1951. It doesn't even say I was born in the month of 1951. It says I was born on April the 13th, 1951, and I know that it was at 10.13 at night. There, there was a moment, there was a time when I was birthed into the kingdom of heaven. And I'm so glad that my mother was not in labor for a month. Uh, and the same is true spiritually. You, not, you may not be exactly aware of when this all took place. 
Like you're, if it was in a general period of time in, in the course of a couple weeks, but in reality with God it took place at a point in time. Well, come with me to chapter 5, verse 25, and I want you to see that it's not only a monergistic regeneration, but it is a spiritual resurrection. This is a verse that we looked at last night, and in John 5, 25, Jesus taught that the elect are spiritually raised to life by a powerful resurrection from the grave of sin to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look first at the previous verse, verse 24, this is another instance where there is human responsibility, verse 24, divine sovereignty, verse 25. They're like two hands that clasp together. They're like the heads and tails of the same coin. So verse 24 is the human responsibility, and it's the free offer of the gospel to all who read this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So we would ask the question, how is it that someone comes to believe in Christ? We would ask the question, how is it that someone comes to be the recipient of eternal life. We would ask the question, how is it that someone comes to hear his word? And the answer is in the next verse, which also starts with the same signature formula, truly, truly, I say to you. An hour is coming and now is, meaning this very present moment. When the dead, those who are spiritually dead in trespasses and sin, will hear the voice of the Son of God. It's referring to the, the effectual call of the shepherd when he calls his sheep by name to come to himself. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Hear. Regeneration is pictured as a resurrection, being raised from the dead. God imparts life to the spiritually dead soul. They are raised, and in that split second, now that they are made alive, they call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Dead people don't call out for salvation. Dead people lay in the grave. That's why God must first raise the one who is spiritually dead to life in order that the very first thing that they do is believe upon Jesus Christ. Only someone who is made alive can call upon the name of the Lord. Someone who remains dead in trespasses and sins cannot call upon the name of of the Lord. And we could use the illustration here of Lazarus, who was dead and in the grave. And Jesus came in John 11, and he says, where have you laid him? And they take him to the tomb. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was raised 
roll away the stone, take his grave clothes off, and he came walking out. Now, if Jesus had only said, come forth, the entire graveyard would have been emptied. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. And it was only Lazarus who was raised from the dead and came forth. That is a picture of every new birth and by which God calls to the dead and they are raised to believe upon Jesus Christ. You remember in Ezekiel 37, the prophet was taken by God to a valley of dry bones. He said, Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel was wise enough to say, Lord, you know all things. It was a total evasion of answering the question. Lord, you know. And so God said to Ezekiel to do something that, humanly speaking, seems irrational. He said, prophesy to the bones. And as Ezekiel began to preach to the dead bones, the four winds of heaven began to blow. Does that sound like John 3, verse 8? Representing the Holy Spirit. And there was a resurrection. And the dead bones were raised. And they became connected together. And they stood on their feet. And it is a picture of the salvation of Israel in the last days. When Romans 11 says, and all Israel will be saved. This nation of spiritually dead bones. An apostate nation. Living in unbelief in the last days. They will be raised by God to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will embrace their Messiah. And they will weep over Him as one would weep over their firstborn as they realized that it was they who put the Son of Man to death. This is what the new birth is. It is the resurrection of the spiritual corpse to life and to believe in Christ. And so when I stand to preach, I'm aware that in a large crowd like this, it would be naive of me to think that everyone is a believer here. And that as I go through this and preach the gospel, I stand before a valley of dry bones. And I am dependent upon God while I prophesy, while I preach, for God to send the wind of heaven and for God to resurrect the one who is spiritually dead and trespasses and sin. I don't know who that is. And so I just preach to all. And I issue the free offer of the gospel to all, trusting that God will send the wind of heaven, the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, and that God will raise the one who is spiritually dead and trespasses and sin to new life in Jesus Christ. John 5, verse 25, those, the dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. 
Again, in contradistinction to verse 28-29, which is the resurrection of the body at the end of the age. We'll come to John chapter 6 and verse 37 yet again. I want you to see sovereign drawing. The divine power that guarantees that the elect will come to faith in Christ. Verse 37, John 6, look at it one more time with me. All that the Father gives me, please note the next word, will. They will come to me. God will overcome their resistance. God will not take no for an answer. God will bring them to Christ and they will come to Christ. How do I know? How do you know that they will come to Christ? Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless... Now here's how they come. The Father who sent me draws them. You see that? This word draw, we, we, we need to pull over and park here just for a moment. This is an important word. It's a very strong word. In the Greek, it's helko, H-E-L-K-O, or helkuo, H-E-L-K-U-O. And it carries the idea of dragging an object or a person by force. The word was used of someone hauling bricks, a very heavy load, and it had to be stronger than the load of bricks. It is used in the Bible of towing a heavy load. I want to give you some cross-references for this. Acts 16, 19. It was used when Paul was in Philippi preaching the gospel, and they literally drug him into the marketplace. They apprehended and overpowered Paul, and they drug him into the marketplace. Acts 21.30, it was used of dragging Paul out of the temple. Acts 18.10, it was used of, excuse me, John 18.10, it was used of Peter drawing his sword out of his side, or sheath. In John 21, verse 6, it was used of Peter drawing the fishing net that had caught 153 fish and dragging the catch of fish onto the shore. In James 2, verse 6, Helkuo is used of when they would physically drag the poor before a judge. It's the very word that is used here in John 6, verse 44. That the Spirit of God, as the gospel is preached, drags the elect to faith in Christ. It means far more, this word, far more than merely attract someone or urge someone or incline someone or invite someone. It means to forcibly and powerfully apprehend that person and drag them to where you want them to be. That is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. As we all like sheep have gone astray, each one of us has turned to his own way. We were enemies of God, aliens from his kingdom. We were resisting the gospel. We were pushing it away from us. We were hostile towards God. 
we were at enmity with God, and God literally drew us and dragged us to Christ. And in the drawing, took out our heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, such that in the process we desire to come to Christ. And we come humbly running to Christ in the process. It is a very strong word. And would you note, again, in verse 37, it says, they will come because God is greater than man. And the will of God is greater than the will of man. And the power of God is greater than the resistance of man. And verse 37 says, they will come. Someone may say, well, I will not come. Well, if you're one of God's elect, you will. And he will make you willing in the day of his power. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was once preaching out of Matthew chapter 8 on the text, many will come from the, north, from the east and the west and will sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And Spurgeon just gloried in the triumph of God's powerful drawing grace. Spurgeon said, oh, I love God's wills and God's shalls. There's nothing to compare to them. Let a man say he shall do something or I will do this. And what is it good for, Spurgeon says? He never performs it. When a man says he will do something, what is it good for? But it is never so with God's shalls. If he says shall, it shall be. And if God says will, it will be. Now, he has said here, many shall come. The devil says they shall not come. But God says they shall come. Their sins say you can't come. God says you shall come. You yourselves say, I won't come. God says you shall come. Yes, there are some of you here who are laughing at salvation, who scoff at Christ and mock at the gospel, but I tell you, some of you shall come yet. What do you say? Can God make me become a Christian? I tell you, yes. For herein rests the power of the gospel. It does not ask for your consent. It gives consent. It does not say, will you have it, but it makes you willing in the day of God's power. The gospel does not want your consent. It gets it. It knocks the enmity out of your heart. You say, I don't want to be saved. Christ says, you shall be. He makes your will turn around, and then you cry, Lord, save me. And he concludes this, they shall come, they shall come, they shall come. You may laugh, you may despise us, but Christ Jesus shall not die for nothing. If some of you reject him, there are some who will not reject him. If there are some who are not saved, others shall be saved. Christ shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And then he concludes, they shall come, they shall come, and none in heaven or in earth or in hell can stop them from coming. Close quote. This is the only explanation 
For Jesus saying, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And whatever opposition the world may put up, Satan may put up, demons may put up, human hearts may put up, no matter how corrupt the society may become in this country or in my country, Christ will build his church. And every one of the elect will come to faith in Jesus Christ, and not a one will be left behind. And however many he has elected in this generation shall be brought to faith in Jesus Christ, all that the Father has given me shall come to me. I want to tell you, if that doesn't light you up, I think your wood's wet. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what it would take to awaken you from the slumber of your sleep. We have a triumphant Savior, and the Holy Spirit is sovereign, and the work of God will carry forth victoriously. In fact, we will prosper the most in days of persecution and adversity than in days of prosperity. The church has never flourished in prosperity. We have always advanced the strongest when the winds of resistance have howled against the church. And so as we are living in times in which the sun is setting on this age and darkness is beginning to shroud the land and we are being veiled with unprecedented debauchery. It is the doctrines of grace that is our hope, is our assurance that God will be performing His work. And it should make us want to be a part of what God is doing because this is going to happen. I want to be a part of what God's doing. I want to get in on it. I don't want to be sitting on the sidelines. I want to be out on the field. I want to be on the 50-yard line. It's part of what God is doing. Come to John chapter 10. I want you to see sovereign calling. John chapter 10, we began looking at this last night, and there's only some parts of this that I want to draw to your attention but I want you to know the effectual call of the shepherd to the sheep, and they will come. John 10, verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door, referring to false shepherds, the Pharisees, the false leaders of Israel, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but comes up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. And Jesus was a, said this to the Pharisees. He is calling them out as thieves and robbers as he says this. He's not in a seminary classroom teaching systematic theology. He is on the front lines of life, out in the mix of people, addressing those who are scorning and scoffing this blind man that he just saved in chapter 9. So verse 2, he, referring to the true shepherd, Jesus, the true owner of the sheep, he enters by the door, meaning he came lawfully with messianic credentials and Old Testament prophecies. He enters by the door, 
He is a shepherd of the sheep. I don't need to belabor this anymore, but you know who the sheep are. They're the elect of God. They are the ones chosen by the Father. These are those given to the Son. These are those for whom the Son lays down his life. So note verse 3, to him the doorkeeper opens. Possibly John the Baptist is intended here. And the sheep, listen, the sheep, all of the elect, they hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, he puts forth all his own. Not a one of them is left behind. He puts forth all of his own. He goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Verse 5, a stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of the stranger. Listen, they will not follow the voice of Brigham Young. They will not follow the voice of Muhammad. They will not follow the voice of the Pope. They will not follow the voice of the false prophets. They will follow the voice of their one true shepherd, and it is God the Holy Spirit that will cause that voice to resonate within their soul, and he will raise them and draw them and bring them to Christ. A.D.B. Peake says, Let a man of the world hear two preachers, one giving out the truth and the other putting forth error. And he can discern no difference between them. It is far otherwise with the child of God. The child of God may be but a babe in Christ, unskilled in theological controversies, but instinctively he will detect vital heresy as soon as he hears it. And why is this? Because he is indwelled by the Holy Spirit and has received an unction from the Holy One, 1 John 2.20. How thankful we should be for this. How gracious of the Lord to have given us this capacity to separate the precious from the vile. Close quote. Listen, when, when the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd call them, Though they are grazing in the community sheepfold, that little head pops up. And they go, that's my shepherd who's calling me. And the other sheep don't hear it. The other sheep just continue to graze. Uh, The other sheep just continue to go about their business. But the Lord Jesus, as he stands at the community sheepfold, he begins to call out his own sheep by name. Brown nose, white face. Black ear, and he calls this sheep by name. And as soon as they hear their name called, that head pops up, and they instinctively know, that is my shepherd who is calling me. And they begin to separate from the other sheep, and they are drawn to their shepherd, and they, they now follow their shepherd as he leads them out into green pastures and beside still waters. That's what God did in your life whenever it was you came into the kingdom of heaven. And at that moment, you may not have been aware that it was all of grace and all of God that was doing this. But when we look at texts of scripture like this, it becomes abundantly clear that it was a supernatural, sovereign operation of God in your heart and in your soul by which you were raised from the dead, by which you were birthed into the kingdom, by which you were given ears to hear the call of the shepherd, 
by which you were drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is so powerful in his drawing that there is no resistance, there is no fight that you could put up. That's why it's called irresistible grace. Are you not glad that God would not take no for an answer from you? Are you not grateful beyond words that he made you willing in the day of his power? And it is only when we understand the doctrine of total depravity and radical corruption how bad we were, how dead we were, can we truly appreciate and understand the miracle for anyone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So, this is a working of the, Holy, of, of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect unity, in perfect harmony, the Father electing those whom He will save, giving them to the Son, the Son laying down His life, and actually saving them, actually reconciling them, actually redeeming them. And then the Holy Spirit sent into this world by the Father and the Son to call out of the world and draw to Christ these whom the Father chose and these for whom the Spirit, or whom the Son died. There's a fifth doctrine of grace which we don't have time to cover. It's the eternal security of the believer. Let me just put it to you this way. If you could be a Christian for five years and then lose your salvation, you would have had five-year life. If you could be a believer for ten years and then lose your salvation, you would have had ten-year life. But what kind of life does he give? He gives eternal life. And that which is settled for eternity cannot be undone in time. You will never perish. None of his sheep will ever perish. Why? He's a good shepherd. A crummy shepherd would lose his sheep. A fumbling, fault, faultful shepherd would lose his sheep. But the good shepherd loses not a one of his sheep. That, in a nutshell, is the eternal security of the believer. And the perseverance of the saints means that those who have been truly born again in the family of God will pursue holiness and will pursue godliness and will be marked by obedience to the Word of God that you will live your life in such a way as to bring glory to God because God is at work within you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You will know them by their fruit and the elect will be known by the fruit of repentance and obedience, love for the brethren, decreasing love for the world, the pursuit of active righteousness, etc., etc., all the many different evidences of the new birth. This one will persevere in their faith and in their trust. Sometimes we 
see someone who gives the appearance of being saved, and they join the church, they start out on fire for the Lord, and then they fall away and we never see them. And so the question is, were they once saved and then lose their salvation? Or how do we explain this? And the answer is, they were never saved to begin with. The faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. And they were shown to be false disciples and never truly born again. Uh, John 8 and verse 31 says this, and I'll close. If you continue in my word, you are truly one of my disciples. Therefore, if you do not continue in his word, you were a false disciple, not a true one.
responsibility of God. If God were to forfeit any attribute or lessen any attribute, God would cease to be God. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.